host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting about the problematic ways museum collections have come into being. Joining us today is Dr. Chris Stantis, a postdoc at the National Museum of Natural History. We'll be talking a bit about Peruvian archaeology, um, the ethics around archaeological collections in museums, um, and particularly how those relate to bioarchaeology, which is um, the study of human remains from the far past. Filling out the panel today is Kirsten Lopez. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I always love when we get to, to record. Um, yeah. So I, I'm in the privilege position, Chris. Uh, you and I actually did a master's together, so I know all about how awesome you are. Um, but for all of our listeners who don't, could you just give yourself uh, a brief introduction into who you are and the kind of work that you do for those who are listening? Sure. Yeah. So my name's Chris Stantis. I'm, I'm from the States. I'm from Alabama originally. And way back in the day, I did a master's with Chelsea. And so I'm sure many listeners to the podcast already know what a bioarchaeologist is. And Chelsea already gave a pretty great short blurb about what we do, but it's exactly what she said. We're archaeologists who study people who lived in the past by directly looking at the people who lived in the past, by examining the human remains that are left behind. And this can be mummies, it can be skeletons, it can be cremated remains, whether they're in urns or tombs or burial mounds or cemeteries. These are, these are what I look at in order to place people within their physical and their social environment that they lived in. And unlike Chelsea, you mostly looked at the physical remains um, from a sort of macroscopic standpoint. Is that right? Yeah, I did a lot of, of macroscopic work um, looking at trauma and disease, I did not get so much into the uh, chemical analysis side, uh, Chris, which I know you've done a lot more of kind of stable isotope analysis. Um, Way to set me up for that. Yeah. So that's exactly (laughs) what I usually work on. And that's what my specialty mostly has been is the method of isotope analysis of human remains. Usually bones or teeth, we can analyze any part of a person, as long as we sort of understand the metabolic processes that go into building that tissue. Mm -hmm. Um, But usually, of course, bones and teeth are what we have left behind. And so by taking small pieces um, and then doing chemical analyses on these, I can break the material down until I'm looking at the sort of the core elemental components measure them in a machine known as mass as a, a mass spectrometer and then understand these sort of elemental isotopic ratios and those tend to address questions around diet migration and climate those are kind of the three big themes we usually look at for that and and unlike a lot of archaeologists i don't specialize in a specific time period or culture or region of the world. What I tend to do is I go where my methods can address cool questions that are specific to the site, specific to the population that I'm studying. And so when I was doing my master's with Chelsea, I looked at Black Death Plague victims from London (laughs) buried in East Smithfield. I then went on to New Zealand to get my PhD at the University of Otago in order to analyze human remains from Tonga and from Fiji in order to think about health and diet and migration in those archipelagos in the past. And at my last postdoc, actually, I was looking at the 15th dynasty of ancient Egypt, and I was trying to understand if this first dynasty, this first foreign dynasty of ancient Egypt was created by invasion, like a lot of the stories say, or if these were actually immigrants that had moved in hundreds of years before the dynasty rose to rule. And these were people who 
rose to power sort of financially and administratively, politically within ancient Egypt, carving out their own place while still maintaining their, their identity as coming from somewhere else. So, so what did you find? I realized that like we're actually here to talk about kind of ethics and I've got a question for you after that, but, but what did you find? Because that's really cool. Oh, yeah. So it was a very cool site called Tel Daba in, in Egypt. And while, we, while archaeologists have never found the actual remains of the rulers of the Hyksos dynasty, and this is important to point out, um, we did excavate the cemeteries of Tel Daba, and we found that these cemeteries, while, while of course in Egypt in the northeastern Nile Delta, they were cemeteries done in the fashion of the Near East, right? So mm -hmm. we're looking at Levantine-style burials, the Levant being that sort of um, Eastern Mediterranean coast, right? Roughly that area. And so we were finding these foreign ways of people being buried. And in fact, we found that these cemeteries covered the Hyksos dynasty and it covered the hundreds of years before the Hyksos dynasty, around the 12th dynasty. And we found that most people actually were immigrants. I'm, I don't remember the number right off the bat, but it was more than half of the people mm -hmm. in this cemetery were immigrants. And, but what was most intriguing to me was I did strontium and oxygen isotope analysis. And for the strontium, especially, what I was really seeing was this wide variety of values that showed that people came from outside of Egypt, definitely outside of the Nile Valley, uh, but they came from all over the place. This wasn't like a single invasive force sweeping into the Nile Delta like the stories of old. This was people coming in from all over being drawn to the Nile and to Egypt. And wow. Yeah. And so what we found, a melting pot. yes, exactly. It was the sort of melting pot and, but somewhere along the way, the story of this melting pot of immigrants coming there for any number of reasons. And it, most notably, um, it was mostly women who were coming in. Hmm. So for economic opportunities, um, intermarriage perhaps between cultures, uh, you know, this wasn't an invading force, but that's what the later stories became because of this kind of, this tale as old, of, as, old as time of yeah. people being scared of immigrants. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a familiar story. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so to see this play out 3,500 years ago, and then to see it play out now, and so many other points in history, this, this fear of immigrants and these sort of foreigners as sort of the scapegoats for all the wrongs within a certain area. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit exhausting, but it's fascinating. It's super fascinating. There's obviously the potential for the, the methods that you use, the strontium uh, mm -hmm. or the isotopic analysis, uh, strontium being one of the elements that you do that on, um, it has this great potential to kind of unpick what actually happened versus <laughs> what people said happened, right? Because we say history is written by the victors and I'm sure, yeah. um, you know, if you played telephone when you were a kid where you whispered from ear to ear and what the first person said and what the last person said were never the same thing um, because people mishear and stories get told and embellished on. Um, so, so this really is the value of going and looking at people. And it's super important to remember that, yes, you're looking at human remains, but they are still people that, you know, they were living and breathing um, at one point. So, so obviously there's this immense positive you can get out of it in terms of getting at the truth. But there is also a concern that is brought up around um, kind of isotopic analysis is a destructive process mm -hmm. um you know would would people want that being done to their remains would they not how do you weigh up kind of the ethics of the potential good versus potential harm 
and do Absolutely. That. And a great segue into what this section was actually going to be about was the yeah. ethics. Um, these are the sort of questions that I've started asking myself. I've obviously I've always tried to ask myself these kinds of questions, but like they've been taking more and more weight for me. And I've been realizing how much more work needs to be put in to mm -hmm. thinking about these kinds of questions. And this especially came up within my current postdoctoral fellowship here at the Smithsonian, here at the National Museum of Natural History, which is an amazing place. I mean, this is basically where biological anthropology in the United States, this is one of the places where our field was created, really, um, for better or worse. And so to be here, there's this immense weight of history, as well as all of these past deeds that have been done here. And so when I first wrote my fellowship for here, I wrote it to analyze small pieces of Peruvian human remains. Again, as I said, I go kind of from place to place using my methods to ask site-specific questions, culture-specific questions, but it's never within a, the same necessarily region or time period. And so this time around, I knew that the Smithsonian held a large collection of Peruvian human remains. And I planned to take small pieces from these human remains in order to ask questions about how Peruvians lived in the past um, in pre-Hispanic times, and especially the Peruvian mummies that are kept here. There's a fairly large collection. To date, there are 58 Peruvian mummies in the National Museum of Natural History. And they were acquired anywhere between 1871 to 1994, right? And these mummies are estimated to be anywhere from 500 to over 5,000 years old. But mm -hmm. as I got here and I was able to start looking into the, the curatorial decisions, the institutional policies, and the personal goals of previous researchers that had like that it shaped how this collection was formed and, and how these mummies even got to be in the museum, that ended up being sort of, that ended up giving me pause and ultimately changing my plans for analysis, mm -hmm. right? Because I found that the those moments of donation purchase or expedition collection all of these different ways that the museum had acquired these 58 mummies did not align with my personal ethical choices or i believe the professional policies that fit our field as bioarchaeologists and i don't think it fits what the museum wants to be at the moment. And so I've taken the time to pause my own isotopic research because I found that quite a lot of these, these mummies actually made it here um, often in ways that are, that were legal for the time, right? But maybe yeah. not in ways that were fair to all parties involved. And that's a big issue across it's not just with human remains. Um, a lot of collecting that was done in the past, whether that be uh, 200 years ago, you know, or 50, um, or even more recent than that, the, the kind of the knowledge and the ethics that kind of museums hold around collections policies the voices of those individuals um who might be parts of dissent communities have really become more valued um which is great i think they you know need to be more valued still um so like it's really important to have those moments of, of reflection yeah there was a really great story and i don't want to completely muddle it up but it was um this doesn't relate necessarily to the Smithsonian collection because this is about Dorsey, 
right? He was a, an archaeologist who excavated in Peru, and most of his collection ended up in the Field Museum in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He was doing this for his PhD project for Harvard, so it's in the Peabody, um, and it's also in the American Museum of Natural History. And he talks about how when he was excavating, right, he had permission from the state level, largely. um, So this was, as an archaeologist, I'm really bad with dates. This (laughs) is always so embarrassing. Um, I might do a quick Google (laughs) because I just like, I'm so bad at dates. And this feels important for actually setting the scene, right? How many times a day do I just have to do stuff like Dorsey, Harvard, Peru? Okay. We won't do with you on that too. (laughs) Right? Also, Um, dates change in different areas. Like, what is the Iron Age in Denmark versus the Iron Age in Scotland versus the Iron Age in, you know, like. Oh, and never mind prehistoric. What does that mean? That's that's a whole other yeah. We change by location. Dates are hard. Dates are hard. But all right. So Dorsey, right? So he was working as an archaeologist via Harvard in like the 1890s, and he had permissions from the government of Peru to do these excavations, right? Like this was legal practice, Mm -hmm. um, according to the people who are, you know, the rulers who were largely of Spanish descent being like, sure, go out and get some mummies. Do you? Um, But there's actually a story about a local governor who was just kind of like, no, you can't just come up here and just steal our stuff. Are you kidding me? Like this, this like local hero, like took a stand Mm -hmm. and but Dorsey had the backing of the state of Peru. And so um, eventually the governor was sort of overturned and being able to stop this. And Dorsey was able to excavate the burial sites of these ancestors. And the locals were like, okay, we're going to get paid to do this. And we're going to do this because it has to happen. Um, but the local workers, they come in the morning and they start to perform a ceremony And I can't remember if Dorsey knew the local language or if he had to have a translator and be like, what is happening? Um, But basically the locals were explaining to their ancestors, we have to do this. If you're going to curse anyone, curse these folks. (laughs) That's amazing. So great. Um, And totally well-deserved. Yeah. Because you know, modern anthropological studies in Peru, in conversation, you know, in actual conversation with Peruvian communities, know that there's this really sacred importance of the body after death, right? Like life and death aren't just this duality. It's Mm -hmm. a continuation. And so for many societies and for many people in Peru, you need to treat dead bodies in much the same way as when they were alive. Yeah. Like death has this social transformation, it has a biological transformation, but the dead are still people. And these are people who deserve feastings and deserve offerings and deserve remembrance. And these interactions in Peru are meant to be done in physical nearness to the bodies of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. And instead, the bodies are here at the Smithsonian. Yeah, and I think that that's such a great point of, and and it is something um, that bioarchaeology has been kind of getting back around to, um, particularly when you read, you know, older um, articles, but even some today you talk about, oh, like the information or the data or the, and yeah, you do get data from, from remains, but at the end of the day, they are still people and they deserve to be treated with respect um and in you know accordance with how their their cultures 
would uh, want them to be treated. Um, and I think that's a really great point to end on because we have reached the end of our first segment, but I can't wait to Whoa, come back after so the break quick. to talk more about this. It was fast. <laughs> Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archaefantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been talking to Chris Stantis about some of the work that she's done with uh, stable isotope analysis, as well as some of the historical issues that exist around museum collecting practices. For this section, we're at museums today and how they are grappling with these questions of where do items come from? Do we have a right to have them? Um, just because something was legal in the past doesn't necessarily mean that it was fair or that it was ethical or that it was moral. And how do you deal with that? Um, so Chris, what has your experience been um, in the last kind of couple of years? I've certainly seen attitudes start to shift a little bit. Um, would you say that that's fair? Absolutely. I'm both within bioarchaeology, the wider anthropological kind of field, and within the public eye, people are having these really important conversations, I think, a lot more openly and honestly mm -hmm. uh, about, about what needs to be changing. You know, um, some real cases for burning it all down <laughs> and starting over again, um, as well as, you know, cases for, for some slow steady changes in the right direction. And I got to say, most of the time I'm in the burn it down camp. Um, but I understand that that's not always practical, sadly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do try to celebrate the wins, both for my own sanity and because I think for a lot of associations and research institutions, talking about the wins and why they're so important can bring about a bit more change than looking around for the matches. Yeah. So, um, it's been, and it's actually, I've within my own project, while I was starting to look more into the accessions information for the Peruvian mummies and becoming sort of increasingly uncomfortable with with these stories. Um, I was actually really, really grateful for how supportive people were actually within the department and within the museum in taking this time to pause and to rethink who we want to be and where, what we want to do, right? And the Smithsonian already has, um, you know, the repatriation office in order to help return human remains and certain types of cultural items, especially sacred objects to cultural and lineal yeah. descendants. And of it's course, also, as you, I just, I want to oh, point out really quickly. Um, repatriation office is great. Um, I believe it was founded in response to NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Um, that was enacted in, I believe it was in 1990. Um, mm -hmm. It's 2022, right? There are a lot of places who are still it's working on NAGPRA um, repatriation. Yeah. Uh, so it is, it is a long, uh, sometimes complicated, sometimes arduous process. Um, but just, just for anyone who's not aware of the Absolutely. background there. Yeah, and I I am not an expert 
and the legalities of this. Part of the problem with hopping around to different countries is I don't always get to understand the like the deep histories of specific legalities. So I'd be really interested to to learn more, but I do understand that the Smithsonian acts not under NADPRA, but under the National Museum of the American Indian Act. Okay. Um, so it has its own separate law and they're very close, but they're not completely the same. Um, you'll have to get somebody from the repatriation office to talk about it sometime, I think. Uh, and so, yes, this was in the In My Act and the NAGPRA. They were both created in the 90s. We're getting well past that time. Mm -hmm. and, and it's important to note that both for NAGPRA and the National Museum of the American Indian Act, these refer to Native American human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and returning them to culturally affiliated, federally recognized Native tribes. And that is so important to understand that differentiation of if you're not federally recognized, if you're not a tribe within the United States, you're not guaranteed protection under these acts. So that's a huge downside. Now I must say the repatriation office here at the National Museum of Natural History has taken it upon itself to return several um, items and human remains from outside the states. So even though they are really busy working under this legal framework that they're, you know, obviously required to do. These are people who do care and they're taking the time to do right for areas in Tasmania and Australia and New Zealand. And so that's it's really good. Work. That, yeah, that extension of outside of what is legal and what is ethical and what is fair. Um, that's really, really lovely to see. And I'm excited, hopefully, to be seeing more of that in the future. Taking a lot more interest in doing things beyond legal requirements and looking into the ethical requirements, even within this present day. So you may have seen the news. And if you just like search on your on your browser, like Smithsonian Benin Bronzes, mm -hmm you're going to find news pieces about the Benin bronzes. Now, these were artifacts that were taken from what is now Nigeria after a British invasion, raid, looting in, um, in 1897, right? And the Brits took huge amounts of objects away from Benin, um, sold them, distributed them, claimed them as spoils of war, which technically I think you can't, consider something a spoil of war if there isn't a war. That would make sense, yeah. So, hmm, yeah, so it's not a spoil of war, it's just looting, um, which includes these really beautiful Benin bronzes. Um, and a lot of these pieces made their way to many museums as well as private collections. And so if you search Smithsonian Benin bronzes, you're going to find news articles about the Smithsonian returning these Benin bronzes. Now, what's important to note, the Smithsonian, of course, is the wider institution, which makes up over, like over 20 museums, a zoo, research centers. These are actually all kind of separately acting under their own guidance, mm -hmm. right? And their own museum culture. And if you reread those articles that came out in March this year, I believe it was even announced earlier last year, those Benin bronzes are from the National Museum of African Art. So that is a different museum within the Smithsonian that had Benin bronzes. So while the National Museum of African Art and the director there, um, I believe her name is, I mean, I just say Dr. Blankenberg personally, I don't know her on a first name basis. But Dr. Nairi Blankenberg, she, um, she set up this, this movement to repatriate these, these objects to Nigeria. But what's not mentioned in a lot of these news articles is the National Museum of Natural History actually has 21 Benin bronzes. Yeah. And so 
the National Museum of African Art is was setting up to return theirs. And the museum that I'm at was thinking about things. But, and because there are, importantly, there were four Benin bronzes that were on display in the African Voices Hall. I believe it's the second floor. Um, and they've been on display since like 1999, mm -hmm. right? Um, but last, as of last week, if you go into the African Voices Hall, those four Benin bronzes have been removed from the exhibition nice. because um, Kirk Johnson, the director of, of the museum that I'm at, the National Museum of Natural History, doesn't think that these necessarily have a place within what a modern museum should be. So Kirk Johnson has set it up to begin researching the provenance of the Benin bronzes and this effort's being led by like curators with help from the director of the National Museum of African Art, as well as Nigerian experts um, to understand. And That's really amazing. cool. Check this out. Yeah, so this is like brand new developments, right? And so they're working on this. It's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. So we might not know what the fate of these Benin bronzes here at the museum, but the recommendation currently is anything traced to that 1897 expedition should probably be returned to Nigeria, or at least a shared stewardship should be discussed because that's what's happening at the National Museum of African mm -hmm. Art right now. And that aligns with the Smithsonian's new policy on shared stewardship and ethical returns. This is what a modern museum can and, be. And I love the, the idea um, and the practice of, of that international collaboration with the home country and culture. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Even just a, a unilateral, like, we're gonna give this back to you, can be a little disorienting if the uh, home country isn't prepared to take them and secure them in a way that fits um, their vision of what it should look like. Absolutely. And it sounds like um, reading some of the Nigerian news, Nigeria is absolutely ready for these back. Um, there's been some very cool galas and art events, which is wonderful. But that's not going to happen with every piece in a museum, is it? Yeah. There might be cases where items are large, or items are fragile, or, you know, maybe there are shared questions that can still be researched at wherever it is now, as long as it's done collaboratively and openly and honestly. I think it's also important to note, because I, I did, and this is going back <clears throat> over a decade, um, so different, different museum, um, one, different, it wasn't in D.C., um, and also co different conversations were happening you know, kind of 2000, 2009, 2010. Um, but it, it was working on NAGPRA and there were issues, um, and this particularly actually had to do with human remains where there was no information on where they came from. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So who, who do you return it to? Who do you ask? Um, you know, you can do isotopic analysis to try and figure out like a region that they were from. But if you don't have consent to do that from the descent community, can you do that without consent? Um, so yeah. Because what happens if you find out that that was never going to be okay? Exactly. Destructive analysis. Um, no, that's a so, really good so point. Some of these, these cases can be, very complicated and they, and they do need to be taken case by case and there will be different sensitivities around any particular object or group of objects um you there isn't a great like one size fits all um approach other than no because talk are to so people. different like <laughs> yes yeah cultures are so different and the ideas and care that needs to be taken surrounding human remains or funerary objects, sacred objects, or even everyday objects, this differs so widely across cultures and across time. You're absolutely right. I do like there's 
a researcher who's who's thinking about these kinds of questions. Her name is Dr. Asia Lands. Um, she uses the term flesh in collections, talking about fleshing in these human remains in order to build their stories in a way that does honor to these people. And, you know, I don't want to put words in her mouth. Um, you should probably get her on this podcast at some point. Um, but she talks about how one of the only times she can imagine destructive analyses of human remains being of use is to find the provenance of these people, to find where they come from. Um, but otherwise, if it's not known and if you can't ask the communities, uh, unless it's shared research questions where destructive analyses can help answer these questions, you know, what, what are we doing? Yeah. It's taking that step back and asking, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And should we be doing this rather than just saying, but science, but I want to. <laughs> but, but science. Yeah, because that's actually bad science. Yeah. Um, and, and there certainly have been been arguments uh again kind of going back to nagpra there were people who argued against it um and said we won't be able to do science we won't be able to hold collections um if we have to return everything and uh if all of your collections are going to have to be returned if we're going to be ethical and moral there's a question of should they be have existed to begin with yeah and i love um you know, like, so for the Benin bronzes, there's actually been an offer from artists in Nigeria to, you know, for one infamous museum that is not returning its bronzes quite famously mm -hmm. and keeping them in the basement where the rest of the Africa mm -hmm. exhibit is. Uh, Nigerian artists have offered to, to exchange their current like beautiful bronze work done in much the same yeah. style um and so the museum would still be filled with this beautiful artistry that has a history it has a culture it has consent um the artists that has consent that has a story that can be shared and shared proudly um and the artists kind of cheekily were like we've gotten quite a bit better actually so you might like these new ones <laughs> Um, so think about, think, like, think about what that kind of museum can be, which I guess we're going to talk about in our next section. Yeah. Too. But, but why did, why do museums just have to be places that hold things, right? What is, what is the value of a thing? Um, yeah. And I think, um, that touches briefly on, on what museums were in the past, right? They were these places to hold things and to hold other people's stories and tell them in a way that made sense to this very small percentage of those of the world right and within that very small view yeah well, and museums did kind uh, of come out of cabinets of curiosity which were a western european um often titled very rich at the very least um individuals who yeah just had you know bookshelves that were filled with cool things that they found um that were different that people maybe hadn't seen before often they didn't have labels or a lot of times provenance information um it wasn't really about education it was kind of like uh look what i have yeah and i find these old museums kind of fascinating from a sort of um, cosmology mm -hmm. standpoint, right? Of how did these people in the past build their world and how did they organize their world around them? And so it's kind of fun to go back to those old cabinets of curiosities, whether they're still in existence in much the same way that they had been created originally. There are some museums that keep their very mm -hmm. old exhibits um, in the same setup or to see some of the old photos, like some of the old photos of the Smithsonian 
when it was first created in like the late 1800s. It was very much a cabinets of curiosity style. And it's interesting to look back on that, not so much for the value of the exhibits and objects themselves, but to see how those people in the 1860s organized their world is really fascinating. So did they put Egypt at the forefront because it was, you know, super sexy and interesting at the time? Did they put the rest of Africa in the basement? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a really great point. It's like, you know, excavating or doing archaeology of, of museums, applying those same archaeological questions and tools to to what was. Um, there are, unfortunately, still many, many museums who may have some older exhibits that doesn't have context mm. on what you're seeing and why it is the way that it is. Um, great exhibit I saw a couple years ago actually on Cabinet of Curiosities talking about what you were just saying about kind of the cosmology behind them and what they meant for how people viewed and and how museums and collections had progressed from cabinets of curiosity into into modern museums um and it's great that that would be really fun to um, see I will try and remember uh, and find information on it and link it in the show notes um because the the name of the exhibit is absolutely escaping me at the moment. Um, but if you're listening to this, hopefully there'll be something in the show notes. Um, ah. but, it, but it is really great that we're having these kind of conversations. Um, we are at the end of our second segment, so we'll be going to break shortly. And I'm really excited to talk about the future of museums and what that might be Ooh, in our third yeah. segment. See you after the break. <laughs> Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on this episode, we have been talking with Chris Stantis about some of her work and also museum collections, their problematic origins, uh, kind of what this state of museums are today, what their purpose is. And in this segment, we're going to be moving on to talk a little bit about what we think a good museum of the future might be um, that deals with issues regarding ship, uh, where collections items are, who has final say, what happens to them, um, how do we do that in a way that is better, essentially. Absolutely. And it's, it's so interesting to think about where museums will fall within the future, within this, within this trajectory of people trying to do better and fit with the standards of today and thinking about tomorrow. I mean, there's, so, you know, this is women in archeology. span We often talk about, about archeological objects and there's an uncomfortable and unfortunate truth that a lot of natural history museums often held archeological, um, archeological objects in, in the past, right? Um, when these natural history museums were built, They were often created with an anthropology, archaeology aspect because many people who were not Western were sort of considered otherized, more part of the natural world, or in the case of many indigenous peoples, these people creating the natural natural history museums created these museums with the idea that these indigenous peoples would soon be Mm -hmm. extinct and would become part of our history rather than part of our of our present and future. And that is exactly and that's an unfortunate and a very racist part of of the history of museums. It's part of that colonial legacy. And and nowadays I love that there's an anthropology department in the National Museum of Natural History because it means we get to think about humans place in the world Mm -hmm. right 
we get to think about our physical and our social environments and how we affect this amazing planet and what we can do to sustain a biodiverse planet. And doing that in a natural history museum alongside geologists, botanists, uh, mammologists, and all of these amazing other zoologists is great. It's a great place to be embedded in. And so while there was this really terrible history as to why we started out in this museum, there's, there's this wonderful future of collaborative work to answer these questions together. Yeah, and, and I do think that there's been more awareness, certainly in the, in the last few years, at least from a, from a Western perspective, of how interconnected everything is. Um, if we do go back and talk about those like mm-hmm. Cabinet of Curiosity time periods um, and the view of the world that they had back then of, you know the nature, the animal, the base, and then like humans being kind of above or better. And and as we've progressed, we realize like we're not, humans are also animals. Um, But everything that we do Mm -hmm. has an impact, right? Whether it be, um, you know, the, the Romans harvested a wild plant that was birth control to extinction, or whether it's climate change, um, also driving other species, both flora and fauna, again, to extinction. But it is all interconnected. And that's something that a lot of um, indigenous societies around the world have known for a very long time. Um, and we're finally starting to pay attention um, and to realize that as well and, and to look for kind of knowledge outside of um just the the western sphere um i guess so i think it's really exactly it's really great to have anthropology in a natural history museum because it is all connected yes it's it's so great to have and to to have this sort of collaborative generation of knowledge Mm -hmm. right um, where we're kind of trying to decenter both in terms of the silos created within academic research, but also all of these silos that have been created by putting certain viewpoints and certain backgrounds on a mm-hmm. pedestal compared to others, right? Very diplomatic of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> the But whenever we have this kind of diversity of backgrounds we can actually have a diversity of solutions Mm -hmm. and that's what's so exciting about what the museum of the future can be in terms of at least in terms of research which is obviously right like a very important aspect of museums yeah museums are not just exhibits although that is certainly how a very large portion of the public engage with museums Mm-hmm. But yeah. and and so that research behind the museums needs to change. Um, the how objects and specimens and human remains are acquired by museums, how they're stored by museums, and whether they're returned, that also needs to there needs to be this sort of radical transformation of power dynamics and taking down this kind of this idea that there's a gatekeeper. Yeah. Right. This, um, I think I heard somebody call it once the cult of the curator. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> Chelsea's worked in museums, so she she knows exactly what I that's do. like. There, there is a weird, yeah. um, and has kind of historically been a weird hierarchy of like who gets listened to in museums and whose ideas are, yeah, um, valuable. That you know listen to yes um yeah and I think some of that is is breaking down a lot of people think of museums as places of collections of things one thing I would potentially like to see for a future is museums as a place for the collection of of ideas or like you can have reproductions of something to try and encourage people to both think about that you know original culture um again assuming that this is okay with the descent community um but to also have those conversations of of who does have ownership what is the role that 
racism, sexism, colonialism plays in the lives that we live? Like how, how can museums become a place where people don't go to see things, but they go to, to learn, to grow, to have those difficult conversations, um, you know, using, using yeah. the past to talk about immigration, how it w- wasn't bad and it was actually celebrated in an area and um, mm-hmm. get people to think differently about immigrants, well, not- whatever it is. But that also shifts the focus yeah. from a collection of things to a, an idea, a conversation space, um, a community space. One of the things that's interesting about our culture American culture specifically, but Western culture at large, um, one of the, um, you know, obsession, or I guess one of the the things that um, is part of our culture that goes back a, a long time is this obsession with things as cultural items. And so anything from, you know, the, uh, what's the word? Um, like the the pieces of uh, saints relics. that were collected. The in, there yeah. we go. The relics of uh, the Middle Ages, and and some people think, oh, relic. That's just old stuff, right? And I'm like, no, that was originally like a piece of this person, um, or clothing of this person, or something that had their blood on it. It was part of. It, it was a fin- physical manifestation of the sacred. It was sacredness. said it was. And you actually go through and look at them. You can have. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. It, that was the idea. Most of the time, it wasn't real, and that people were getting hoodwinked. But in it's that obsession with the physical manifestation of these ideas, and I think um, something you mentioned earlier, Chris, was the idea that. Um, artists would be able to be bring in in certain contexts replacements for controversial items or just you know items that are not wanting that the descendant communities are not wanting to have on display and yeah. having something that the the descendant communities can decide how to tell their story um, and what they want to tell their story with because all cultures have some um some type of uh, connection with the physical things. I mean, that's what archaeology is kind of all about. Um, and, you know, the, the relationship to those things is why sacred objects are not allowed to be viewed by um, certain people and in, in such. So being able to recognize that connection is not totally um, without reason but Mm -hmm. also being able to be like okay how can we help people connect with this culture and and have the culture not only be respected but the culture create that um that representation themselves and how they want to be seen um and that's kind of connects with i feel like what you guys were just saying um yeah like uh one of my favorite exhibits and objects at the National Museum of Natural History is um, there's these beautiful Haida totem poles that were commissioned in like the 1870s, right? Um, and so carvers were paid for these items to to be created. Originally, I think for like the Philadelphia mm-hmm. exposition, um, but they made their way to the museum. But possibly my favorite part actually is on the stairs surrounding these totem poles as you go up. There's these beautiful modern carvings done by a Coast Salish carver of a bear and a salmon carved in the traditional ways. Um, and, and museum goers are allowed to touch these objects, to connect with these objects in any way that yeah. they, they want to. And that is so wonderful. You know, like for the Benin bronzes, it doesn't need to be the original moment. Yeah. That is now mostly, you know, associated with this British raid. This can be celebrating modern artists as they themselves look back within their culture and use these use these um, methods of creation that has been passed down for generations. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so it's. I can't even. 
fathom it myself. I always feel like I have a pretty good imagination, but I'm just so excited and intrigued about what the future of museums will be and if we'll be able to, to transform power dynamics, if we'll be able to sort of democratize and decentralize these, this labor and this knowledge production. Yeah. Um, and have something that's truly multiple voices, which I think would be, I mean, especially for like for the Smithsonian would be so American, truly American to unflinchingly look at the past and where we came from and where we are, but also just kind of bravely look to the future. Um, I I think it would be really great to have that. And, And Kirsten, you made a good point about letting people tell their own stories because for so long, the stories have been told through the lens of whoever is curating the exhibit. Um, yeah. and, and going to your point, Chris, about power dynamics is that museums need to be willing to share that power. They need to talk to communities. They need to ask communities what they want. And when they're told, they then need to follow through right? It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, I have a conversation for the sake of, of tickboxing it, but, and yeah, it's going to be different. Um, it is going to be adjusting mindsets and the ways of working. Um, but it, it gives such a, a more rich understanding of other people. Um, it brings so much value and so much context to the objects that museums do hold, uh, the ones that they are allowed to keep, you know, or are given, um, you know, art pieces by by current artists, um, or you know, how, however you work it. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of conversation about the the uh, decolonizing museums um, but mm-hmm. it's the people in power who want to stay in power to do the decolonizing not realizing that like part of decolonizing is giving that power away yeah yes and that's hard yeah. to do it's hard to do so yeah uh, that's not it's it is an important thing to do but also recognizing like that can be difficult and some people aren't willing or able to do that and that's where sometimes you just have to those who aren't able to give up or willing to give up those pow- that power, wait till they move on or to find someone else to fill that place. Yeah, or... I, I think it needs to be more than wait until that person moves on. I think there needs to be a way of making it clear that... Mm. Especially with... Uh, museums are fascinating places. So I've mostly worked at universities, right? And universities often move slow. They're, they're large kind of, you know, institutions. Museums move even slower. And so, well, universities, especially large established universities that can use their, use their name, use their prestige, um, often tend to think, I feel like, in, in terms of decades, right? In terms of change, museums often look towards the centuries. You know, these museums have been around for so long and they're thinking about the curation and the care of objects for absolutely as long as they can. And so they end up thinking in terms of just like beyond our lifetimes or at least beyond hopefully our our working (laughs) years. And so if we let things happen at the rate of museums, it simply won't happen. Yeah. But I think I think you're I think you're right in that it's hard too, right? I mean, you guys have talked a lot on previous episodes, I think, about you know, you've touched on the frustration of of movement and how things don't always change as quickly as they can. And by the time it might even change, if it happens, good people have already been hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And and this is the case. This can be the case for museums who are holding on to sacred objects, only allowing certain voices 
to to have the stage things need to change yeah or this is continuing a cycle of of hurt um so it'll be interesting i think it'll be really interesting new museums have a chance i think um I may need to rephrase that since I am currently here at the second oldest museum for the Smithsonian, but I am really, really interested in new museums and what they end up finding as their way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, I do recommend if y'all are ever in DC, check out the Futures exhibit at the Arts and Industries building. Um, which is a spin on the expositions of old, you know, like the old world mm-hmm. spares. Yeah. Um, but actually thinking about it from a democratized, de- decolonized kind of viewpoint of who gets to speak, who gets to be represented, um, who is the future for? And it's 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 really actually pretty radical compared to a lot of large museums. And it's incredible. I'll definitely have to check that out next time I'm in DC. Definitely. Hopefully you won't be away so long that they've already built the new, you know, National Museum of the Latin American, or I'm sorry, um, National Museum of the American Latino. Or what is it? The National Museum of Women. Uh, fingers crossed, it won't be won't be that long. But there, yeah, there are some there are some really kind of new, interesting museums. I know that also the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which op- it's so good. It opened in I think it was twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, um, and and it is it is different. You know, it takes a. I mean, it, it's still a museum. Um, it's still a collection of, of stuff. Um, but it, it does take a slightly different tact, a slightly different approach to things. Um, and as we do see more of that, even within an institution yeah, what, that's, you know. Yeah, what happens when a history that isn't white or privileged or male, what happens when another set of history is centered and those voices actually get to decide and tell the story and that's what NMOC, the national museum of african-american history and culture does and it is an incredible space it is yeah. yeah um for anyone who ends up in dc strongly suggest going we have inevitably run over um i think we run over every episode no. um Oh, no. uh, Chris, do you have any kind of final final thoughts or pearls of wisdom that you would like to leave the audience with? Um, The best I can think of is just absolutely butchering this quote by Dr. Dorothy Lippert, who works at the repatriations office here at the Smithsonian. Um, And she was once asked, like, well, what's going to happen if the museum is emptied, right? If everything is returned to where it should be. And she basically said, if we empty the shelves of these objects, of these stolen items, then we're going to be able to refill the shelves with, with good relationships. Such a great and sentiment. I'm really hoping that that can continue. Absolutely. Yeah. That is that is really powerful, um, and yeah, relationships. It's where the future of museums are at, uh, is building building better relationships with communities, um, both international as well as local. Chris, um, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation. It's always lovely to get to to chat with you. It's really been great. Um, we'll have to get you on again at a future date to talk about some of your other your other work. Uh, also to our audience, thank you so much for listening. You are kind of why we continue to produce this podcast. If you haven't already, please um, follow us on Twitter at Women Archies. You can also make sure that you have subscribed to the Women in Archaeology podcast on your favorite podcast app. 
Um, if you are looking to see what else we are getting up to, you can check out our website at women in, uh, sorry, at women in archaeology's Twitter. Uh, you can check out the women in archaeology website, <laughs> www.womeninarchaeology.com. Um, and if you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please consider going over to Patreon and donating. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.